This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to Midweek Episode 17. Hey, going right along, aren't we? Yeah, it's hard to believe since we started doing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've already got this far along. And we have special guest tonight, Nate Hills from the Conspirators Podcast. Nice. So Nate's pretty cool and he's got an awesome story for us tonight. Bigfoot related. So for you cryptid fans... There you go. There you go. All right. The little story that we're going to do for you tonight, though, is a gentleman by the name of Gordon St. Thomas. Now, Gordon was an officer for the United States Department of Immigration. This is back in 1942, and he was transferred to Nogales, Arizona, which is right on the Mexican border. He rented this one-story house that used to be a bachelor uh, I guess it used to belong to a bachelor mm-hmm. in the army, so this was this was his home, but it was a former former officer from the army. So this was an old house. It was built in the eighteen hundreds. He moved in with his wife and his two children. Now something didn't seem right from the very beginning. Here, he said they always felt like that that when they walked into a room that somebody had just been in there before them and had just left the room. Oh. Eventually, they figured out that they were sharing their home with some type of an entity, not knowing what kind, but they mm-hmm. knew something was there. So this entity, though, was a neat freak, which oh. I guess is well, kind of good. good. Yeah. So, for example, like when St. Thomas would come home, he would, you know, from work, he would throw his hat on the sofa and then kind of walk into the kitchen and start you know, looking for something to eat. When he'd get back into the living room, the hat was now hanging on a hook. <laughs> And he worked late at night, so a lot of times he'd get home, everybody yeah. else was asleep, so he yeah. knew it wasn't his wife or something doing that. He would occasionally leave a book out on the table, only to find it put back on the bookshelf. Then he would leave like an, an empty cigarette pack laying around, and it would somehow make its way to the garbage can. Nothing wrong here. The spirit was also very helpful in other ways. One night, or actually I should say one morning, Gordon St. Thomas put the coffee percolator. That shows how old this story is. Oh, yeah, percolator. He put the coffee percolator on the stove, and he had the gas turned on. He had it all the way up on high. Mm -hmm. Well, he went upstairs to go shave, and uh, he decided or had forgotten completely about him having the coffee pot on. Mm -hmm. So he runs downstairs to the kitchen only to discover that now the gas had been turned on low. So something. Well, he is one. helpful, dude. I'm I'm digging this ghost. <laughs> Keep in mind that he was the only one up at the time. So once again, his wife couldn't have done it. There was another time he came from home from work one night. It was really late. He didn't want to wake his wife up, so he decided to sleep in the spare bedroom. So he said he was awoken. By something shaking his foot very vigorously. Hmm. 
He sat up. He turned on the light. He was getting ready to just turn the light back off and go to bed because he thought, you know, what the hell? I don't know what, what's going on. Maybe I was just a bad dream or yeah. something. But then he happens to, as he reaches for the light, he happens to look up and he notices right above his bed on the ceiling is a scorpion. Now, in the in this part of the country where the desert and stuff is, obviously it gets colder at nighttime and stuff oh, like that. Oh, yeah. And as the temperatures fall, the scorpions could actually feel the heat coming off of a body going up towards the ceiling and would probably end up dropping onto him. Oh, my and some gosh. of these scorpions can be... Deadly, you know, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that the home had been occupied by a soldier in the past... Leads them to think that maybe it, uh, it's a soldier now that's doing it, especially because uh, soldiers are known for being neat freaks. Because oh, right, because you know, that's what they have to do. That's what they have to do. So, uh, but not a lot is known uh, about him. He eventually uh, passed on, obviously, because that was in the forties. Mm-hmm. And um, but not a lot is known about the actual house. Oh as, wow! As far as which one it is, or or any of that, we just know. That it was built in 1800s and stuff based on what his story yeah. told. But we don't know where exactly the house is there. To be yeah. able to. So it was like, he was like his angel watching over him. Yeah, something like that. Oh my gosh, can you imagine looking up and seeing a scorpion? You Holy remember when we crap. lived in the islands and you you said there was this, <laughs> there was basically you called the first day that like you were at the house by yourself and there was a scorpion? Because oh. you, you described it, you was like, it was this and it was oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, I do remember that. What the hell? What'd I do? Did I freak out and leave the country? Uh, yeah, five months later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's scary. And then he could have fell on his face. Uh, oh. what, if he was, what if he had sleep apnea and he had his mouth wide open? And the scorpion fell in his mouth and stung the inside of the back of his throat. Oh, trying to get out. Lord have mercy. <sighs> Thank you, soldier. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's listen to uh, listening. Let's listen and let's listen to Nate from the Conspirators podcast. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I've got Nate Hale from the Conspirators podcast with us tonight. Uh, you've heard Nate on our last uh, two Halloween episodes that we've done. And he's always been uh, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And it's taken me forever to get him on here. I don't know what's taking so long. It's all on my end. Uh, but, Nate, thanks for coming on, buddy. Oh, thanks for having me. I love your show. I'm a big fan. Well, we, yeah, we love your show. So it's it, it, what I like about your show is I think when people hear Conspirators podcast, they might think, oh, it's going to be nothing but 9-11 stuff and, and, you know, but that's not what your show really is. I mean, it's, it's conspiracies and stuff, but it's, it's not to the level of, of what, uh, I think a lot of people think when they, when they see that. So give me, if, if for somebody who's never heard your show, how would you explain it? Well, like I say, I mean, when I first created the name The Conspirators, honestly, I probably would have changed it if I thought that it was going to, you know, lead everybody to think it's all just conspiracy theories. What The way I usually describe my show is it's the stories from history that your history teacher never told you. See, I'm a big history fan, and I like to tell about the weirdest corners of history I'll tell. And a lot of times I'll tell you just straight facts from history, but then I'll throw in some just weird tidbits and very strange events that have happened. And again, I've talked about some conspiracy theories. I've talked about serial killers. I've talked about unexplained disappearances, but I always try to give a historical context to whatever it is I'm doing. And your show is a really scripted show. Uh, it's it's you're the only host. It's a very well uh, very well written, and it's very well produced. 
And that's one of the things that I look for in a podcast when I go to listen. And that's one of the things that caught me about yours right off. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, like I say, I probably would have done a different format if the fact that I had anybody else to talk to. But since I'm here by my lonesome, you <laughs> had to do a scripted show. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. How long has the podcast been out now? I want to say we've been out for, I think, four years now. And it's, and I knew it had been a long time. What's been the hardest thing so far about doing this particular show? I uh, probably making sure I stick to a schedule. I mean, if you're going to do a podcast, you really need to do that. You need to have a schedule set up and stick to it. When I actually first started out, I was going weekly on the show, and that was just a nightmare. I just couldn't keep up the pace, so then I eventually switched to every other week, and that seems to have worked out for me. It gives me time, more time for the research and the writing, which is really what I want to focus on. Has there been an episode that you got some backlash on that you maybe weren't expecting, or, or maybe you were expecting? Well, you know, it's funny. One time I had a woman who is an, and I totally understand. I did an episode one time on, I don't know if you recall, a uh, story about the, uh, about some lions that were eating a bunch of people and when they were building a train in around um, the 19th century in Africa. Anyway, yes. I, yeah, well, what it is, I did that story and I talked about, well, the fact that, yeah, they hunted down these lions and killed them. And I had a woman one time email me, and she was very earnest about it. I mean, she was an animal lover, and but she was very disturbed by it, and she really was very, very unhappy. She's threatened to never listen to my show again if I ever did anything like it. And I, I totally understand. I apologized. I pointed out that I, mean, I can't even watch, like, an Animal Planet when they have, like, the vet shows and all that, because I don't like to see animals in pain <laughs> either. But, of course, then afterwards, I did have to point out that I do a lot of shows where people die, and she, that didn't seem to bother her at all. <laughs> You know, it's like that meme that's floating around uh, that you'll see that's a split screen meme where it's like me watching people get killed by a serial killer and then me watching an, a dog get killed and then you see him crying over that part. And exactly. <laughs> but that's that's true, though. I think I think the the theory behind that, though, realistically, is, you know, people are just there's so many different emotions with people. But it seems like dogs just, and mainly dogs, it seems like that's more what it is than anything, but dogs just seem to appeal to people because it's like they are 100% in our hands. It's like they, you know, we have to feed them, we have to do this, we have to do that. And and I think because of that, it's just something about the thought of turning your back on an animal and just mistreating them when all they have is unconditional love. Oh, and absolutely. I think that's where it comes into, but yeah, I mean, I have a dog and a cat and I mean, I love them both dearly and I'd be, I'd be broken hearted if anything happened to them. So I totally understand. It was just, I found that a little amusing at the time. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how she would have done if you'd have done the story about the, uh, the Christians being eaten by the lions <laughs> in the Coliseum <laughs> or something. I wonder if she'd have had the same effect or if she was cheering for the lions. <laughs> well, I actually do have another episode. I'm really thinking about doing sometime here in the future, talking about weird animal stories. And I don't know how they'll she'll react to that one. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> not everything. Right, turns so, out well for all of them. <laughs> so Nate, you, uh, you prepared a, a story for us that we're going to play the clip of rather than having you, uh, just recite it out. Because like I said, yours is more of a scripted show. And, uh, uh, so we're going to go ahead and take a second and we're going to play that and we'll come back and discuss it. Great. The problem with researching stories from history is it's often difficult to determine whether the story is actually true or not. Stories change over time, 
as tales get told and retold. Oftentimes folklore and outright misinformation can become intertwined with the truth. But sometimes you have to look past the story itself and consider the source. Practically every culture around the world has some legend of larger-than-life creatures that we, with our modern sensibilities, might describe as monsters. Medieval Europeans often told stories of the wild man of the woods. You'll see this particular creature depicted in medieval art and literature as a hairy hominid, which seems to have grown out of the older Greek legends of satyrs. In North America, many native tribes have their own legends of hairy giants that walk upright on two legs. Although you can find native legends of similar creatures in practically every state, Many of these stories appear to be centered around the American Northwest. The Lumi tribe of the state of Washington tells of a creature they called Samiquas, a shy creature that stood around six to nine feet tall and was covered from head to toe in reddish fur. The Lakota, or Western Sioux, spoke about what they called the Chiatanka, which roughly translates to the big man. In 1847, explorer Paul Kane began relating stories he'd heard from the Chinook Indians about a race of cannibalistic wild men he called the Skookum, who lived on the peak of Mount St. Helens. Legend has it that the famous Viking explorer Leif Erikson wrote about encountering hairy monsters with black eyes when he and his men landed on North America's shores back around 986 A.D., In 1603, Samuel D. Champlain was told to watch out for a giant hairy beast that roamed the forests of eastern Canada that was feared by the Mi'kmaq Indians. Although the vast majority of hairy ape-man stories over the years have described the creatures as shy and prone to run away from humans, back in 1924, a group of prospectors in Oregon claimed to have been attacked by a group of giant ape-men. This occurred in a narrow gorge on the eastern side of Mount St. Helens, which, you might recall, was right where Paul Kane claimed a cannibalistic clan of eight men he called the Skookum lived. Because of the attacks of 1924, the gorge is now commonly known as Ape Canyon. In the summer of that year, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son Roy came stumbling out of the woods, Shaken and terrified as they told an incredible story of how they were attacked. They were gold prospectors and they had built a tiny cabin down in the gorge for them to hole up for the night while they were out on one of their expeditions. They claimed to have been about eight miles from Spirit Lake when they encountered four giant creatures covered in black fur that were all walking upright. They said each of the creatures had long ears that stuck straight up and they each had four toes on their feet. The man estimated each of the creatures had to weigh at least 400 pounds. Upon seeing the creatures, the men all panicked. Fred Beck fired his rifle at one of them and hit it three times. The creature fell off a cliff and the rest of the eight men ran out of sight. But that night, the creatures returned, and now they were furious. According to the men's stories, they were awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of a loud clomping against the sides of the cabin. The ape men were slamming their bodies into the cabin walls trying to get in. Then they began tearing the roof apart. This allowed them to begin tossing rocks inside and it was clear right away that they were targeting Beck 
One of those rocks struck Beck in the head, rendering him unconscious. The attack went on through the night until, as dawn broke, the creatures finally gave up their assault and wandered away. Upon returning to civilization, there were several skeptics who pointed out a number of discrepancies between the men's stories. A pair of U.S. Forest Service rangers headed out to the scene to investigate further, and they came away convinced the men had ripped open the roof of the cabin themselves and carefully placed some large stones inside. They also thought the dozens of oversized footprints scattered around the cabin likely had been created by the men as well. One other alternate explanation was put forth sometime later that some mischievous teens from the local YMCA might have begun tossing rocks down in the cabin from a high perch. Despite the rangers debunking their story, many of the prospectors' friends and acquaintances stuck with them. Ever since then, curiosity seekers have ventured into what is now known as Ape Canyon, looking for their own evidence that the area is inhabited by giant hairy men. Occasionally, witnesses have returned claiming to have found giant footprints and even caught glimpses of the creatures. During the 1920s, a schoolteacher named J.W. Burns was working at the Chihalas Indian Reservation near Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia, when he heard the native stories of these ape-like creatures who lived in the forest. Burns would go on to compile these stories in a series of Canadian newspaper articles, and it was in these articles that Burns anglicized a Salish word, Sasquets, meaning hairy man, into a word we're probably more familiar with today, Sasquatch. The name Sasquatch would stick around and continue being used by people to describe such creatures ever since. Although it was during the 1950s when the hairy man of the woods received what is probably his most famous nickname of all. In 1957, a road construction project was underway near Bluff Creek in Northern California. The project was run by a couple of brothers named Ray and Wilbur Wallace. They had a crew of about 30 men working under them, many of whom would later go on to report witnessing something unusual in the woods. It was late that summer when Wilbur Wallace first reported that something had been throwing metal oil drums around on the work site while they weren't around. The work proceeded slowly after that, and by the time winter set in, they had only completed 10 miles of road. By the spring of the following year, some of the men began reporting that they had discovered a number of large, unusual footprints that most people wrote off as bear tracks. On August 3, 1958, Wilbur reported that something had thrown a 700-pound spare tire into the bottom of a deep gully near the work site. Then on August 27th, Jerry Crew showed up for work and found several giant footprints pressed into the dirt around the bulldozer. These footprints were much clearer than any they had found before, and these were obviously not made by a bear. They appeared, in fact, to have been made by a barefoot human, except these footprints were much, much larger than any human footprints should have been. This story would eventually make its way to a local newspaper when the wife of one of the crewmen sent a letter to the editor, Andrew Gonzoli, describing what the men had found. A reporter named Betty Allen suggested they make plaster casts of the prints to preserve the evidence. On October 5th, Gonzoli published an article containing pictures of those big footprints the men had found. And from there, the story got picked up worldwide by the wire services, and the name Bigfoot would continue to be used ever since. 
If you go back and read Gonzoli's original columns, you can see he treats the story told to him about Bigfoot pretty skeptically. He had no idea back when he published his articles they'd catch on in such a big way. Prior to the 1950s, stories of hairy man-apes would occasionally make their way into the news. But after Gonzoli's Bigfoot articles came out, and the creature had a name that really caught on with the public, that's when Bigfoot mania really took hold. The way Bigfoot was portrayed in popular fiction would change with the times. Several pulp novels and men's adventure magazines from the 1950s and 1960s contained Bigfoot stories. By the 1970s, a number of pseudo-documentaries and films such as The Legend of Boggy Creek began portraying these creatures as dangerous predators. Bigfoot even had a cameo playing the heavy on one of the most popular episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. It wouldn't be until the 1980s, with the popularity of films like Harry and the Hendersons, that Bigfoot would regain his status as a shy, gentle creature. The Grassman, Yowie, Yeti, Skunk Ape. Whatever you choose to call the creatures described in such stories, the problem remains whether we should believe in them at all. Modern science says a creature this large couldn't possibly remain hidden this long. Nor could it possibly survive without a large breeding population. Another big problem with believing in Bigfoot is that a large number of hoaxers have sprung up over the years who have done their best to make any serious evidence seem suspect. For example, after Ray Wallace died in November 2002, his son Michael came forward and admitted his father had planted phony tracks all over the Pacific Northwest using crudely carved wooden feet. But if Wallace really was the man who invented Bigfoot, as some have suggested, then should we immediately dismiss all the other hundreds of reported sightings, footprints, and blurry photos as hoaxes as well? Well, that's difficult to say. Just eight years later, Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin would release what many people still claim to be the most credible evidence of Bigfoot to this day. Actual film footage of the creature walking through the northern California woods. Yet even that footage has often been called into question. You've undoubtedly seen this film countless times. It's those famous blurry frames of footage where a large hairy creature lumbers along past some trees swinging its arms and legs and partially turns towards the camera. Roger Patterson died of cancer a few years after releasing the film to the public. His friend Bob Gimlin remained largely silent on the subject of the film for the next 25 years, never offering any hint that he or Patterson had faked the footage. Although during the 1990s he finally spoke out, and while he swore neither he nor Patterson committed a hoax, he did admit that it was possible someone else could have hoaxed them. They had, after all, headed out to the woods that day with the express purpose of finding and filming Bigfoot. A lot of people have seen the very fact that they found him to be as suspicious as anything. Some skeptics have suggested that none other than our old friend Ray Wallace may have played a hand in creating a hoax for the film. Although the evidence for this appears to be nearly as shaky as the Patterson-Gimlin footage itself. Speaking of the shaky footage, several years ago some tech-savvy individuals managed to use modern video equipment to smooth out the shaky camera work in the Patterson-Gimlin footage and from there may have helped unlock a further key to what, or who, may be seen in the most scrutinized piece of footage outside of the Sapruder film. 
In 2004, paranormal investigator Greg Long tracked down a former Pepsi bottler from Yakima, Washington named Bob Hieronymus, who admitted to him that he was the man inside the Bigfoot suit in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Not only that, but Long claimed to have tracked the sale of the Bigfoot suit to a North Carolina gorilla suit specialist named Philip Morris, who sold the suit to Patterson for $435. According to Hieronymus, Patterson offered him $1,000 to dress up in the Bigfoot costume and lumber around for him in front of the camera. Although apparently Patterson never paid Hieronymus a dime before he died of cancer in 1972. You can find footage online of Hieronymus walking along, minus the hairy costume, and it's interesting to note that his normal gait appears to closely mimic the way Bigfoot walked in the 60-second clip. Although these claims made by Long appear pretty damning, they're far from concrete. Long has never provided any proof of the sale of the gorilla suit, and aside from his word, we only have Bob Hieronymus's confession to back him up. Bob Gimlin, on the other hand, has denied to this day that Hieronymus is the man inside the suit. He also insists the film ultimately ruined his life. For one thing, the film ruined his friendship with Patterson. After the pair made the footage public, Patterson partnered with his brother-in-law, Al Diatley, and went on a public tour with it in an attempt to raise funds for another Bigfoot expedition. But as time wore on, even though he'd been promised to be made an equal partner, Gimlin felt as if he were being edged out by the other two men. Although the two men managed to make amends shortly before Patterson's death, afterwards Gimlin was forced to face the public spotlight and all the public ridicule that went with it alone. The common wisdom goes that extraordinary claims require extraordinary amounts of evidence. And in the case of Bigfoot, that evidence has yet to surface. Or has it? In 2008, and again in 2012, a used car salesman named Rick Dyer came forward claiming on two separate occasions to have shot and killed Bigfoot. But in both of those cases, the purported body he showed to the public turned out to be nothing but a cheaply made phony. In truth, until the day someone produces a real living, or dead, Bigfoot specimen that can be tested by credible scientists, there will always be people who cry hoax. And yet if we look through history, there are some stories that are a lot more credible than others. And a few of these stories come from sources that seem downright unimpeachable. In the early 1800s, a German-born fur trapper named Baumann and a partner set out on a beaver hunt in the remote alpine terrain near Idaho's Salmon River. Situated in the shadow of the Bitterroot Mountains, the area is still mostly pristine wilderness even to this day. Baumann was a relatively young man in those days but he was also well-seasoned and strongly aware of how to live and thrive in the wilderness. He'd spent much of his life in the woods, and he believed he knew all the dangers the forest presented. But he was wrong. As a whole, frontiersmen don't tend to be very superstitious. Their lives are hard and practical, always focused on the task at hand, leaving little room for imagination or for fear of ghosts or other things that go bump in the night. During his childhood in Germany, Baumann had been brought up being told fairy tales and stories of goblins and other supernatural creatures that lived in the woods. But he was grown now, and he'd long since given up such childish fantasies. Baumann and his partner had been out trapping in the woods for several days and not having much luck. 
They spent their journey moving from one side of the creek to the other in the hope of bringing home some pelts. But nothing they tried seemed to be working. They worked their way along a path that followed a meandering stream which, local legend had it, was supposed to lead to a treasure trove of beavers. But there were other legends about the area they ventured into as well. Stories Bauman and his partner chose to ignore. Rumor had it a year earlier a solitary hunter ventured into that same area, only for his badly mutilated corpse to be found by some prospectors a short while later. But, like I said, Bauman and his partner weren't superstitious men. And they'd heard stories like that plenty of times before. And they knew them to be just that. Stories. The sort of thing that sometimes got passed around by drunken saloon patrons in the dead of night. The trappers led their mountain ponies as far as they could go along the rocky trail before they were finally forced to leave them behind. The ground was becoming too treacherous and it wouldn't do for one of their horses to hobble themselves by breaking a hoof in an unseen crevice or by stumbling over a fallen tree. The two men tied the ponies up in a small meadow then headed forward on foot. About four hours later the sun was drooping low in the sky and they knew they wouldn't have much daylight left. So they set up camp in a small open glade. They built themselves a lean-to out of brush then tossed their heavy packs underneath it. Unburdened, the two men continued upstream for a short distance to get their bearings and see what lay ahead. The forest around them was mostly a thick wall of pine and fir trees. From their narrow path, they could see the steep mountain slopes in the distance ahead. Eventually, as the shadows began to fade into twilight, they decided to return to camp. But they were surprised by what they found when they got there. Something... Most likely a bear had been in their camp while they were away and had gone rummaging through their packs and smashed their lean-to into bits. There were tracks all around, but the men paid them little mind as they scowled and swore under their breath as they picked up the mess the animal had left behind. It was only after darkness had set in and Bauman was busy making dinner by the campfire that his companion took a closer look at those tracks. He realized that these weren't normal bear tracks. The trapper called Bauman over and told him this bear had apparently been walking on two legs. Bauman scoffed at this, but when he came over and inspected the footprints by torchlight, he realized his friend was right. The trappers discussed whether the footprints could be that of a human being, and neither one of them was able to come to any satisfactory conclusion. They eventually settled in under the lean-to and went to sleep. Sometime later that night, Bauman was startled awake by a strange noise. There was a smell, too, all around him. It was a horrendous odor, thick and musky and wild. He rubbed away the sleep in his eyes, and that's when he realized that he and his partner weren't alone. A massive shadow stood just outside the lean-to. Bauman grappled for his rifle and let off a shot that must have missed, because whatever it was that had come into their camp darted off into the black forest. After that, neither man could sleep another wink. They relit their campfire and they waited nervously in the protective orange glow until the morning sun returned. They spent the next day setting out more traps. It became an unspoken agreement between them that neither man left the other's sight all day. 
When they returned to the glade where they made camp, they were taken aback to see that something had smashed their lean-to and tossed their belongings around again. This time there was still plenty of light and they could see the footprints in the soft earth everywhere. Whatever had made them was most definitely walking on two legs. Only judging by the size of those prints, this was no ordinary man. He had to be at least twice their size. This time the two men weren't taking any chances. They gathered up as much dead timber as they could find, and they kept a large fire burning all night. They took shifts keeping watch while the other man slept. Throughout the night each man claimed they heard strange animal noises, a harsh grating moan unlike anything either of them had ever heard before. They both agreed that whatever had been making those noises remained nearby, just outside of their field of vision, somewhere in the dark. By the next morning, they both agreed that enough was enough. They would pack up their belongings, including their traps, and head back home. If all went as planned, they would be gone for good by that afternoon. As they trudged through the woods picking up their empty traps, Bauman became certain they were being followed. Every now and then, the trappers heard an errant branch snap or something rustling in the nearby brush. Bauman knew he was being watched. By noon, they were only a couple miles away from their camp. The sun was high and bright overhead, and the warm golden light seemed to wash away whatever fears the men had felt the night before. They were grown men, after all, and both armed. By now, the idea that there was anything to fear in these woods was beginning to feel a little silly. Bauman told himself he was just being paranoid. They still had three beaver traps to retrieve from a nearby ravine. Bauman told his partner he'd head in that direction to pick them up, while his friend returned to camp and packed up their things. The remaining traps were set near a tiny pond, and to Bauman's delight when he got there, they were all full. Maybe this trip wouldn't turn out to be a complete loss after all. It was getting late and Bauman took his fresh haul of dead beavers with him as he made his way back toward camp. As he approached the little glade, he called out to his partner about their good fortune. His partner did not answer. And when he approached camp, he first noticed that the campfire had gone out. A thin curl of blue smoke trickled upwards into the sky. There was no breeze, only silence all around. Their packs lay neatly arranged by the campfire. Bauman called out to his friend again, but still received no answer. That's when his eyes fell on the body of his friend. Even at a distance, there was no doubt the man was dead. He lay sprawled out alongside the trunk of a massive fallen spruce tree. His head was bent at an impossible angle, his neck clearly broken. There were deep, bloody bite marks in the man's throat. All around the man's body were the same telltale footprints they'd encountered before. Massive, two-legged footprints much larger than any normal human could make. Bauman couldn't catch his breath. His heart hammered in his chest. He drew closer and touched his friend's body. And that's when he realized it was still warm. This couldn't have happened more than a few minutes earlier, which meant whatever did it was probably still nearby. Bauman snatched up his rifle and left the rest of his belongings behind as he ran for his life through the woods. He dashed along the rocky pass until he stumbled back to where they'd left their horses. Then he climbed onto his horse and rode out of the valley as fast as he could, 
he never returned to those woods again. Now, Bauman's story is a frightening one, no doubt, but like any such story, you have to question its veracity. The tale, as it's been told and retold, all appears to stem from a single, second-hand source. But in this particular instance, it's also a particularly credible one. You see, Bauman lived to be a very old man, and in his waning years he told this story to another seasoned outdoorsman. This was another serious-minded fellow who recounted the tale in an 1890 book called The Wilderness Hunter. It's an unusual story in that it's the only one like it in what is otherwise a pretty straightforward narrative account of what it's like to live and hunt in the wilderness. As I mentioned, the author was another seasoned outdoorsman, and he was also considered to not be prone to flights of fancy or superstitious nonsense. Although the author never claimed to have encountered anything quite on the same level as Bauman had, he did admit that one time while camping in the same Idaho wilderness, he too heard some strange noises he was never able to identify. The author of this book had an unusual inspiring background. He had been born into a privileged New York family. He suffered from asthma as a child and he grew up sickly compared to his siblings. But he refused to let his ailments hold him back. And from there, he focused his attention on building his physical strength and mental stamina. He built a persona for himself of a rugged man of action. He spent time out west busting cows as a cattle rancher and even worked for a spell chasing down outlaws as a frontier sheriff. He became a war hero in Cuba and also gained a reputation as a skilled big game hunter. He got into politics and made an unsuccessful run for mayor of New York City, although he would later act as a city's police commissioner, and from there he went on to even bigger things, some might say the biggest. It's true. One of the most famous Bigfoot stories in history comes to his courtesy of none other than Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening to this special mini-episode, and thanks so much to Jerry and Tracy for giving me the opportunity to appear on their show. Very cool. So you chose a paranormal subject, which you, which you also do when you did the uh, Halloween episodes, which is very cool. Um, it's funny because I was actually looking at a book earlier today. It's a, it's a book that I look at a lot. It's, it's on, on just mysteries and stuff like that. And they had the history of Bigfoot in it. And I, luckily I skipped right over top of it. So I wouldn't be bored during your segment. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those subjects that, that I find I guess that's one of the things you can say about my show. It's always the things that interest me at whatever moment. So, yes, one day I might be doing a serial killer story because that's interesting to me. In this case, I happened to stumble on some really interesting Bigfoot stories, and I found a way to tell the history of it, and I thought I, made, thought I did a pretty good job with it, hopefully. <laughs> I, um, like I say, this. I mean, obviously, I'm pretty skeptical, honestly, about a lot of stuff, particularly the paranormal, but I like to give, be fair about it, too, so... I know we did, uh, I, I'm not a, a huge cryptid fan. I joke about it all the time on the show. Cryptids and UFOs, it's almost like I, I do them just because I know people want to hear them. But <laughs> I do always seem to find stories like uh, of the, the cryptid and the and the uh, UFO world 
that I do end up finding interesting. So it's at some point in time, I guess I've just got to give in and say I like a lot of them because I I never do one that I don't like. Well, yeah, they're pretty. I mean, they are pretty fascinating overall. I mean, I mean, no matter what, even if you don't believe in them, there's some really just fascinating folklore that gets intertwined with different um, different cultures. Like in the Bigfoot episode, I talk a lot about how a lot of the Native American cultures each had their own their own version of Bigfoot, basically. They spoke about, and I find that just really interesting. Because it predates, you know, our knowledge of Bigfoot. Yeah, and that, and that ties right in with the story uh, that we did uh, on on some cryptid stories that we did here a while back. And one of the stories talked about a man that said he was, you know, kidnapped by Bigfoot. And he had, this was back in ni- 1924 oh, up in Canada. And the Indi- the Native Americans, I almost said a bad word, the Native Americans at the time had, had described to him that Sasquatch was hairy all over and, and was more like an animal. And at that time, uh, people described Sasquatch more as like a giant Native American that only had hair on his head. So you're right. They, they did have the description down even when, uh, uh, the people here in the 1920s weren't describing Sasquatch or Bigfoot like that. You know, I know the story you're talking about, and I was so tempted to include it in my own episode, which we just listened to there. But that was one of the ones, because there's another, there was another very similar story, which I did include talking about a group of prospectors in the 1920s who, claimed to have got gone on, come under attack by a group of Bigfoot who like tore apart their cabin and started throwing rocks at them. So I decided to go with that one, but I know the one you're talking about, about the man who was kidnapped by Bigfoot too. Yeah. I just thought that story was completely, I mean, it's somewhat believable, but I, I it just, I couldn't buy any of it. And you know, man, it is what it is, but it's, I have a hard time buying a lot of these too, but at the same time, they're fun to listen to. They're fun to understand it. And like I say, I am open-minded. If some guy really did one day walk up with a Bigfoot on um, Bigfoot body, I'd say, well, yeah, I guess that was real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Start keep trying to pull the head off. I know this costume's got to come off at some point, <laughs> but I know, like I said, we did the history of uh, Yeti. A while back, and uh, that was actually pretty fascinating, more than I thought it would be, because like, you start coming up with the creatures that are in uh, similar that are over in China, and then you know that there was there was a lot more in in China than I would have realized as far as the belief in in uh, the creature there, and I can't remember what they called it, but it was. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, I know they worship. They actually well, a lot of the Tibetan cultures actually worship the Yeti as kind of like they're like a spirit animal. So I find that one other one pretty fascinating as well. Yeah, the monks actually had what they considered to be scalps, and and uh, at one point they had a hand that they said was part of the yeti uh, that had they had somehow gotten, and and they kept it in their uh, religious belongings. Yeah, I remember seeing one of the one of the one of the many Bigfoot shows on like the History Channel or something like that about somebody who allegedly got got a finger off it, and it turned out to be just you know like a monkey hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they said anyway. But then, uh, but the guy had pretty much just took it. And he cut it off while he was over there and snuck it out. And then, but they said that everything had been so uh, tainted at that point that they don't even know if any of that stuff was real uh, from from the or they don't know if any of it was from the original hand that they supposedly had. So who knows? Well, like there's um another little bit of story I didn't actually didn't and I ended up cutting out of my script too was um talking about the fact that you know the FBI in the late 1970s actually investigated Bigfoot. They were um. They knew somebody in the Bigfoot community who, and who sent them some supposed Bigfoot hairs to have tested, and yeah, they just turned out to be deer hairs. Yeah, that's always the case. It seems like. So, Nate, out of all the shows that you've done, you got four years under your belt. What are a couple of your favorite subjects that you covered? 
If I had to pick a number one favorite, it's one that actually doesn't get as much play and probably doesn't get as much interest. There was a, it's about a woman named Lillian Alling. Uh, she was a 25-year-old Eastern European immigrant, um, lived in New York City back in the 1920s. And her story is just amazing because what it was, uh, strangely enough, she hated America. She couldn't stand it. She worked as a servant in New York City. She just could not stand being here. So one day she just up and packed up a bag and she walked all the way from New York City halfway across the United States, up into Canada, and kept going west to the Bering Strait, trying to get back to Russia. And again, the big mystery is whether she made it or not, and there's some pretty good evidence she might have. <laughs> That's incredible. But I, found that, I just find that story absolutely fascinating, because she was just so tenacious about the whole thing. People were trying to stop her all along the way, telling her, lady, you can't do this, you're crazy. But she didn't have any special gear, she didn't have any special footwear, um, she just had like a little shawl, and she just kept going. I, I, it reminds me of a story that I used to hear Zig Ziglar tell. I used to be a big Zig Ziglar mm-hmm. fan, and, and he used to tell a story about it was a farmer that he needed money for whatever. I don't remember what it was. He needed money for something for his farm, though. And he found out that there was like a, uh, a cross-country type race. And yeah. he decided that he was going to sign up for it. Never ran a day in his life. He was like 50 years old. And all he had on was bib overalls and and clunky boots, and it was like people were like, "Well, you can't run in that kind of attire. That's that's not what it's going to take to build win a race like this." And the guy just w- went and you know the old story, slow and steady wins the race. He ended up winning this. I, I want to say it was like a fifty mile uh, race or something through all kinds of treacherous terrain and stuff. And he ended up winning this race and winning that that fee. Uh, just because it, you know, he was not going to be outdone and it didn't matter what people told him. And, you know, the whole moral of the subject was, you know, don't let people tell you what you can and can't do, uh, because that just negativity planted in your mind is usually what would be your undoing. Oh, that was exactly the case with Lillian Alling there. I mean, she was, I mean, say what you will about her. Apparently she was kind of a nasty woman to be around and not the particularly nice, you know, like I say, she just wasn't a very nice person at all. But I mean, you got to get handed to her. She pulled something off that was pretty darn amazing <laughs> if she was head nasty you'd think somebody would just gave her a ride <laughs> here let me get you out of here <laughs> but nate it's been fun having you on the show brother uh like i said it's uh you're a member of the dark myths and we're glad to have you as part of that group so we get to join a lot of forces on on that little uh group and you know you were one of the nicest people to us when we first joined up and uh, i'll never forget that well, thank you so much. I really, I mean, I'd like to say I love your show. You guys are some of the nicest folks I know. So I really appreciate you having me on today and let me play my show for, for your audience. Oh, not a problem at all. Tell everybody how they can keep up with you. Uh, like I say, you can find us on all those different social media things. We can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, like I say, if, um, you know, like I say, we also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. And from there, you can hear all our backlog of shows. Awesome. Talk to you soon, Nate. Thanks so much. I love Nate. Nate puts on such a good show. And I'm telling you, if you've never heard his show, it's not a bunch of conspiracies and stuff. It's just a bunch of cool stuff. I know, like he said in the interview, that some people get confused and think that maybe it's because of the name that that's Uh what it is. But but the reality of it is, it's just a really good show. And he puts a lot of effort into that that podcast. And I think most of you would like it if you go listen. And they're short. They're they're typically only about 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, give him a listen. All right, guys, thank you so much, and we will be back next week. And next week we got Vanessa Hogel. So she's uh, 
she's got a, a show on, uh, I say show on for everything, but it's actually a documentary that's got several episodes out already on Amazon Prime over in Ireland. It's phenomenal. She's got her own podcast. She's a medium. She does a little bit of everything. And, Good for uh, her. She had a little bit of a connection to H.H. Um, H. Holmes trying to verify uh, a skull if, or a jawbone, I guess I should say, whether that was his or not. Oh. Uh, so you might have heard a little bit about that in, in the news. So, yeah, she's got some ties to a lot of stuff. Can't wait to uh, put this one up. So we'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys.